0: Good afternoon. Good, afternoon. Good afternoon. Open your Bibles with me, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. Hal mentioned the uh, seemingly abrupt change in weather. I kind of liked it in the sense that uh, we, we've had such a wonderful fall. And uh, just this last Sunday, we were out with Renee and Tom, Jim and Sharon, and we were out on, on the lake. And what a beautiful time. And then just yesterday, my daughters and I made a snowman in Southgate, Michigan. And uh, <clears throat> so it was interesting because I went to church this morning at uh, that Inner City where we, we go in the mornings and, uh, and I was teaching a, a Sunday school class and I mentioned building the snowman. But Allen Park didn't receive any snow, but Southgate did. They're right next to each other. So quite interesting and uh, we've, we've enjoyed that bit of a change. Another change that's come about is and this is probably to the celebration of your phone uh, the the voting season is now over with and uh, (laughs) I know I I had texted one of my friends a little bit ago and uh, he didn't get back to me for a couple of days and then he got back to me and he said Tim I'm so sorry it just got lost in the midst of all those texts and I knew exactly what he was talking about well, in any case, we're mentioning that uh, the uh, the votes all just took place, and it's an interesting thing, isn't it, that we live in a land, in a place in which we can vote. We're reading today about First Peter, First Peter, chapter two, in a context in which Peter had no voice within his own government. He didn't have the right to vote. He didn't have that opportunity. Nevertheless. <clears throat> What we do know about Scripture is that Scripture provides for us all that we need for life and godliness. This is what the Scriptures themselves tell us. God did not leave us without instruction. In these last weeks, we've been talking about the identity that God has given to us as elect exiles. He's bought us with His own blood, with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then He's made us foreigners in the world in which we used to find ourselves at home. Last week, we began discussing how that means we ought to engage with the culture we find ourselves in. So what should we do? And we talked last week about a couple of different options that have been embraced within uh, the broader world of of Bible believers uh, and, and how those navigations uh, can be either good or bad. And we indicated that we can't do the one, which is abandoned culture, maybe a more of an Amish response, nor can we embrace culture completely. Because, of course, if we believe what the Scriptures say, then the God of this world presently, because Jesus has not claimed, He has all power over the heavens and the earth. But he hasn't claimed the authority of this world. The world is still in possession of the evil one. And so we can't just embrace culture. This would be the progressive response. Instead, what we have to do is is do the hard work of navigating culture, figuring out how we're supposed to live in this world that's not ours as we await the world that... Jesus promised before he left that he's preparing a place for us. So how do we navigate that? That's the difficulty, but I think it is the Christian biblical response. What I mentioned last week was that Peter said, here's what we have to do. We have to reject worldly values, the things that were natural to us before, and we have to embrace honorable conduct, even honorable conduct among those who are Gentiles, among the world in which we live. One of the questions we have to ask as believers then is this, how do we engage with the world in which we live in on a political side of things? And there are a lot of really hard questions that come along with this. As you think about what it means to be a Christian in a world like ours, what do we do Should we, first of all, establish a Christian nation? Is that what God has called us to do? Perhaps we should move somewhere where everybody's Christian so that we could establish a Christian nation. Certainly, that's been a position that some in church history have attempted to to do. And let me just hint at, I think, the biblical answer to that by means of just seeing how that's worked out in every nation that's attempted it. Until King Jesus sits on the throne, I think that's a perilous position. So should we establish a Christian nation? Should you vote as Christians? What exactly should you do? Should you leave your Christianity at the doorpost? You know, if you go into the voting block, they often say you can't bring in any any paraphernalia, you can't bring in anything. And I think many would tell you as a Christian, well, you need to leave your Christianity at the door too as you come into here, because we have a separation of church and state. Should we submit to a corrupt government? If indeed it is a corrupt government. Should we submit to a government that's hostile to Christianity? Or should we stand up and claim our rights? What should we do? Can a Christian run for political office? I mean, if this world is operated by Satan, if... Uh, we, we see such tensions. Can a Christian even run for office? These are a lot of questions that arise as we consider what it means to be a Christian living in a world that's not ours. So the scripture does not leave us alone. It does provide answers to questions like these. And we're going to try and draw that out as we look at 1 Peter chapter 2. Look at your Bibles with me as we look through verses 13 to 17. Here's Peter's admonition along this line. He says this, be subject, or be in submission, follow the lead, for the Lord's sake, every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him, that is sent by the the emperor, to punish those who do evil, and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, You should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So what does Peter tell us in this passage we must do in light of our foreign identity living in the midst of a nation that's not genuinely or truly ours? Uh, Hal mentioned right before I got up here that passage uh, in Philippians, that our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is not, our primary citizenship is not on this earth. How do we navigate that reality then? Here's what Peter says. The first thing we have to do is to be subject to the governing authorities. Be subject to the governing authorities. To be subject means to be in submission to them, to follow their lead. If the government says that everyone has to do something and there is no moral injunction against that, then to the degree to which they have the authority to do so, we must submit. We must subject ourselves even when We feel strongly inclined not to. I feel this every April. (laughs) Maybe you do too. There's a strong inclination not to write that check, not to send it in. And yet, I believe it is my Christian duty as one called by God who says to me, be in submission for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Now, I would... I would indicate this, and I think Peter's implying it, though he doesn't make it explicit, he says this, every legitimate human institution. Of course, it's implied that we're dealing with legitimate authority. There are times where the authority of the government is in question. Look, I, I, don't, I, I don't envy the people who are in certain lands in Ukraine who right now don't exactly even know who's supposed to be the government over them. Because Russia apparently has taken them over, but then Ukraine seems to claim that they still have that. That's a difficult situation. Praise the Lord, we're not in that situation. Further, there are times where people seek to claim authority where it's not been granted. And I will simply say here that this is where Christians are sometimes going to disagree. And I am not going to be up here adjudicating and determining for everybody here, nor do I believe that it, God has called uh, me to do that. I simply will claim that there are times where people may rightly think, where does the authority lie, especially in a democratic, republic in the situation in which we are in. I would say this, though. Whenever we're in murky waters, here's what the Christian natural, immediate... Uh, uh, the the baseline should be. We should seek to be submissive to the degree that we're possibly able. And I'm going to share with you why I believe that is the right position to maintain. Of course, let me just simply submit here, and we'll talk about it a little bit more in just a moment. There may be times where we are forced not to obey the government under which we 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 are in. Because... They may ask us to do that which the Lord tells us we cannot. And so we'll have to discuss that again in just a moment. Now we might say, well, wait a second. What if the authority is foreign? It's a, it's a for, well, what, what if, not, not foreign, what if the authority is hostile to us as Christians? Then clearly we don't have to submit to such an such a, uh, organization, right? Such a, such a government. And in many ways... I think a lot of Christians would like to say, yeah, that's right. But here's my major problem with that. Think about what's happening when Peter says, submit to the governing authorities. Do you know who's on the throne? A guy by the name of Nero. If you know anything about Nero, you know that Nero was not a friend to Christians. He was incredibly hostile. He's actually going to be responsible for both Peter and Paul's deaths. But both Peter and Paul say, submit to those who are governing authorities over you. We'll, we'll look at uh, Paul's statement about that in just a moment. And you say, well, of course, this is before that. And yet, if, if you remember way back when we began talking about the context of 1 Peter, I think the reason that the, that the people in the text of 1 Peter are going through such difficulty is because there's already persecution happening against Christians, and it is in some, to some degree coming from the government itself. So to the degree that uh, there's a part of me that wants to say, yeah, yeah, I mean, if they're hostile to us, let's be hostile to them. I just don't believe the scripture gives us that opportunity. Instead, here is one who's living under a hostile uh, government and he says, here's what we should do as believers. We should be submissive to them. We should submit to them. And again, I'm going to talk about there are limits to that submission, but to the degree that we are able, we should submit to the governing authorities. Now, you'll notice that he defines exactly who these governing authorities are. He says in verse 13 there, whether it be to the emperor as supreme. Now, of course, you and I, uh, we live in the United States of America. We don't have an emperor who's supreme. In Peter's day, when the... Uh, When the emperor decided to do something, that thing was done. He had unilateral authority to basically accomplish anything he wanted. And what Peter's saying here is, when it comes to the ultimate source of the power of the government, yes, you should be submissive to him. But then he goes on. He says, yes, be submissive to the emperor as the supreme one in the government, but also, verse 14, or to governors as sent by him. That is, to the underlings of the emperor. And so I think that this gives implication that we are to obey our government and not just the ultimate national government, but even the government, the the smaller sections of the government, whether that be the state, coming down to the county level, coming down to the city level. We should be believers who are submissive to the rulers that have been placed over us. Now, maybe you're asking a question in your heart. Well, why should we do that? That's a very American response. (laughs) All right, so why should we do that? I think Peter gives us a series of reasons in this passage. I would say one is because of God's good purposes for government. I think sometimes we think, well, maybe government doesn't do anything good, but in fact, government does do quite a bit of good, and it's designed to do good. Notice what he says again in verse 14. He says this, Obey the governors as sent by the emperor, and then notice what they're to do. This is why the governor sent them. To punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. We're going to talk about this at the conclusion of the sermon, but here's what Peter's telling us is the purpose of government. At least two purposes of government are To curb evil by punishing evildoers. And second, to praise good doers. Are these not two things that you wished were done better within our nation? I think all of us would say yes. God gave us government so that we would have a tool to punish evildoers and to curb that but also to praise good doers and to to appeal to humankind to to do more of that. And yes, I recognize that our government and no government in the history of the world, even the Israeli government in terms of back in the Old Testament times, even that government was not perfect in doing this. But it is God's intention for government. And therefore, we ought to support government so that it can accomplish these things. Indeed, we should seek to press government to do these things. This is what their primary duty and responsibility is. So one reason we should do this is because of God's good purposes. A second reason is because of our witness. And I think that this is the central reason for Peter. Do you remember the reason we got into this passage? In chapter 2, verse 11, Peter says, Abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. But then he says, and act honorably among the Gentiles. So that when they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who's in heaven. That's the, ex- ex- that's the just preceding passage. And now here's what Peter's saying. How are we going to do good such that others would see our good behavior and glorify God? One way of doing that is by obeying the government that is above us. Now, he goes on in this passage. He says this, verse 15, this is the will of God. Uh, I taught for a number of years at a, at a Christian university, and one of the questions that a lot of young people have is, all right, what's the will of God? What's the will of God? I want to know the will of God. You know, they're generally thinking about which girl or guy, you know, but, but, but they're looking for the will of God in reference to their life. And there are just a few times in Scripture that it explicitly tells us what the will of God is. Here's one of them. Do you want to know what God's will is? Here's what he says. Here's the will of God. Notice this. By doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. All right, so God's will for you is first of all, put the ignorance of people to silence. Now, let me walk through exactly what that means in Peter's context. I think it's clear that there were people who were saying about Peter's audience that they were anti-imperial, that they were against the government. Do you remember all the way back, we talked about the fact that, that Christians could not worship the emperor. But emperor worship was the way in which you showed fealty, you showed devotion to the emperor. But Christians couldn't do it, and so there was this perpetual rumor that Christians—you know, those people who were off congregating in their little separate enclaves—they're not coming to the to the national festivals to make sacrifice to the Caesar. Uh, they're, they're even in the workplace not making sacrifices or praise to the Caesar. That person, those people, must be anti-imperial. They must be against the Roman government. And I think what Peter's saying is, put that to silence. How are you going to put it to silence? By doing good. And in this case, the doing of good is by obeying the government. To the degree that you're able. Be submissive to, to, the, to, to the degree that you can. Never make it such... That people think you are against the government. This is God's good program. He instituted for our good. We should be the types of people who say, God gave this good gift, and we're going to support it as much as we possibly can. So one way of being good doers is by obeying the government. And there's a circularity here that's actually quite interesting. Because notice, we are being good doers by obeying the government. And what did Peter say is the purpose of the government? He said, it's to promote the good doers, promote that which is good. Now, I, uh, right now, I'm, I'm preparing to teach a class in January to a, to a school in North Carolina, Shepherds Theological Seminary. And this is a history of Christian theology and the development of theology. And right now, I'm working through uh, the, about the 150 to 250, like really early church history. And what's really fascinating about that period of church history is that there are a bunch of writers, they're called the apologists. Not like, I'm apologizing about everything, but defenders. They're the defenders of the faith. And do you know how they defend the faith? They write to the emperors and those who are in control. And here's what they say. We as believers, as Christians, submit to the government and... We are the premier good doers in the nation. And if you want to promote good, then you should promote Christianity. And you say, well, that's not going to work. It worked. (laughs) In 325 AD, uh, one of the main emperors of the Roman Empire believed it. And that changed the whole face of, of history. Here's what Peter's saying. Hostile government. What do we do? We submit as far as we're able. We do good so that when others see us, their, their ignorance is silenced. We are not those who are known. The Christian people should not be those who are known as those who are against government. We should be known as those who are, to the degree that we're able, supporting it. It's, this is the will of God. So, there are a couple of reasons why we should do it. God's good purposes. Second, because of our witness, and that's the central element Peter's arguing. But third, because of the Lord. Did you notice in verse 13? Peter said this be subject for the Lord's sake. So, why is it that you should submit to the government? It's because of the Lord. Now, what does that mean? Well, This is the passage from Romans 13. You may not be able to read that, but this is what Paul says. Let everyone submit to the governing authorities, since there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are instituted by God. Did you catch that? Submit to the authorities, because there isn't any authority except from God. That is, if there's an authority... God stands behind it, and the authorities that exist are instituted by God. Now, I don't think what it's saying here is you can associate any evil deed by any actor to God because God stands behind them, but what it is saying is that God established government. God put it there, and he put it there for our good, and so to the degree that we're able, we submit to it. He says this in verse 2, Then the one who resists the authority is actually opposing God's command, and those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad conduct. So do you want to be unafraid of the one in authority? Do what is good, and you will have its approval. For it is God's servant for your good. Again, God created this for our good. But then he says this, but if you do wrong, be afraid. It doesn't carry the sword for no reason. It is God's servant, even an avenger, that brings wrath of the one who does wrong. Therefore, you must submit not only because of wrath, but also because of your conscience. In other words, he's saying, you should do this, not only because if you disobey government, you actually might be thrown in prison. You might be fined significantly but also because of your conscience. And so I think the implication here is uh, we should obey the government even when the eyes aren't on us because ultimately we're responsible to God. God has placed this here for our good and we should follow it. So why should we obey the government? It's because of the Lord. The Lord has granted this to us. There's a second reason within this. And that indicates that the authority comes from God as well. Now, we might ask the question, as a holy nation, that's still the passage we were talking about. We might ask, from the fact that we're a holy nation, should we, in fact, follow another nation? Do you remember in 2.8-10, Peter told us, you're a holy nation, a people called out for his own possession. So what rule would any other government have over me? And I think to some degree, Peter answers this question this way. You're right. Yet, your sovereign, that is your king, Jesus, has indicated that you must obey the government of the people you live amongst. Let me give you an illustration. I've indicated here that we are ambassadors. Uh, The ambassadorial position for the United States is often one of the most desirable positions that you could get in government. If you're the ambassador, for instance, to Canada or Mexico or one of the, one of the countries that uh, we are very friendly with, it's one of the most cushy jobs you could ever have. There are other uh, positions that you would never want to have. Would you want to be the ambassador to Iraq or to one of these sorts of places? Well, not so much. What's interesting about ambassadors is that they are from one nation— living in the midst of another nation. The key thing to remember here about the ambassador, though, is that because they are living as an ambassador, they are actually under the law of their own nation. And yet, that own nation calls for its people to live among those people in such a way that it does not offend those people. The president says to ambassadors he sends to another country, though you may have the right to certain things. Here's what you need to do. You need to submit to the governing authority you find yourself under. Follow their laws. Follow their customs. Even sometimes when you don't disagree with it, unless it's morally problematic, obey it. Because this is what God calls us to And so in the same way, I think this is is what it is with us. If we're truly a people called out, we are a a holy nation, then this is not our citizenship. This world, the United States of America, I'm I'm a dual citizen, if you would. I've got the citizenship of heaven, which is my primary citizenship. I've got a secondary citizenship in this nation. And my primary king tells me, submit to your secondary as you live among them in exile, awaiting the time in which I will return to establish the kingdom that you long for. So Peter gives us some reasons to obey the government. And this third reason is because the Lord you serve. All right, so that's the first major argument he makes. We must submit to the government. Second thing he tells us, while you submit submit as free slaves of God. Now that's a tongue twister right there, or at least a mind twister. Submit as free slaves of God? Well, notice with me. Uh, We pick it up here in verse 15, or verse 16. If, uh, If you have the NIV, then you have the words there, submit as free people. If you have the ESV, as I do, it says live as free people or live as people who are free. The interesting thing about that first clause there in verse 16 is there's actually no verb. We're not exactly sure which one he means. So various translations put one there because otherwise it would just say as people who are free. But what should we do? So translations have to add something. The ESV here chose live. The NIV chose submit. I actually like submit. Here's the reason for that. Because that's the very previous verb. He's just said submit for the Lord's sake. So if we're to imply another verb, I think submit's a good verb. And so here's what he's saying then. Submit as free people. When you submit to the government, never forget that you are submitting. As a free person. So what exactly does that mean? I think that there is power to this, as we understand Peter's point. It comes from Matthew chapter 17. In fact, I am convinced that Peter is quoting from Jesus here. He's quoting from Jesus in a passage that is very important. He says this, When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? Peter said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their own sons or from others? And when Peter had said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons... Are free. Do you see that word free? That's the same word that Peter's using in this passage. Notice that in this passage, it's actually a conversation with Peter. Remember? So do you think Peter would have forgot this conversation? Well, he's about to go fishing and find, find money in the mouth. A fisherman doesn't forget that, right? No, he would remember this conversation. Then the sons are free. He says to him, however, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, cast a hook, take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. I will say I've gone fishing numerous times on April 15th, and this has just never worked for me. But, uh, you know, I'll try again. But Peter is told by Jesus this, this parabolic teaching. Uh, the, the question is, do, do God's people... Need to pay taxes. And here, in essence, I think is what Jesus is telling Peter. Peter, your sons are the true king who owns everything. You are children of God. And would the king who owns everything take tax from his own children? And and we in the American system might say, "Well, well, of course, everybody has to pay tax. But if you're thinking in Peter's context, the king wouldn't have taken tax from his own kids. And so he's saying, as the the heir of all things, there's a sense in which you are free from all of this, but in order that you might not offend, but in order that you would honor the people among whom you live, then pay the tax, then do the thing, then submit to the government. But here's what Peter is saying. So when we go to do these things, we must remember that we are serving our government, as liaisons of God himself. He is our primary authority. And why is that important? Well, because, and this this is where it gets difficult, because what happens if our government asks us to do something that is against what God tells us to do? Then we have to understand that we are, in fact, free from their commands in that regard. We are free people. And so somebody asks me to do that, which my God has told me not to do. Even the President of the United States asked me to do something that my God has said not to do. I would say, you don't have the authority to tell me to do that. He might not like that answer. But it's true. My citizenship is in heaven. I am a free person. But I submit to him and I submit to our government because... During this time of exile, my Lord has called me to, And we cannot forget that order. But you'll notice that, in fact, I think Peter is using this analogy of living as free people in a dual way, because he says, live as people who are free. And then he says this, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, or as a veil for evil, or as an excuse to do evil. And this comes from John chapter 8, again, a quotation from Jesus. Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples and you'll know the truth. Notice his next line. And the truth will set you free. They answered him. Wait a second. We're offspring of Abraham. These these are the Jews who are responding. We're offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we'll become free? And Jesus said this, truly I say to you, Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed, even as we just sang. Peter here is saying, don't forget that you are a free people. Your ultimate allegiance, your ultimate authority is God himself. But let that remind you too that your ultimate allegiance and your ultimate authority is the Lord. Don't use the freedom you've been granted in Christ as a license or an opportunity to avail to the flesh. Do you see then how he's mirroring what he told us at 2.11 to 12? Abstain from the passions of the flesh and act honorably. Here he says, and when you submit to the government, submit to them because that's honorable among the, the Gentiles. But don't you dare use your freedom that's in that realm to to, uh, give in to the passions of the flesh. And this idea then is fleshed out even more in Romans 6.18. Having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. Or in Galatians, you were called to freedom, brothers, but don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So we in Christ, have become free. Free from what? Not free from following anybody's lead. Actually, we're free to follow God. And you say, well, wait a second. Isn't that a form of bondage? Well, of course, the Scripture doesn't hesitate to say that. We are slaves of Christ. We're His bondservants. And yet, do we not realize That true freedom often means living within the right constraints. Imagine today if we left this place and we said, you know what, I am going to drive free. I'm not going to listen to the constraints of lights, speed limits, stop signs. And in fact, we convinced everybody here, we are free, free indeed, let's do this. How exactly would traffic work this week? You wouldn't get anywhere, right? I mean, just think what happens when uh, the power goes out and, you know, the light goes out. It's like, oh, well, it's just free. Everybody can go when they want, right? Oh, it's backed up like you wouldn't believe. Because the right constraints give you freedom. It's true. The right constraints give you freedom. And what we have to understand about life is that we shouldn't actually desire a life in which we just do whatever we want all the time. We should desire the life in which we do the right things. And that right thing will actually result in the good for us. That's how God created our world. The problem is we live in a broken flesh that wants the wrong things. We, we long for it. We desire it. And yet when we have it, what do we find? It's empty and vain. It's like being hungry, turning to the bag of chips, and then how do you feel later? It, it just wasn't the satisfying way in which you should live. And here, we are to live as people who are free, but recognize that we are to live as slaves of Christ, servants of Christ, and that that is true freedom indeed. So, so far, Peter's told us two things. He told us, first of all, that we need to submit to the government. He told us, second of all, that we need to live as free slaves of God. And now, he tells us, finally that we have to honor everyone, love each other, and fear God. This comes in verse 17. It's a, it's, it's a literary device. It's called a chiasm. That isn't important. But what Peter's doing here is he's putting two lines and then two lines. I've got it uh, outlined up here on the screen for you. Honor everyone, honor the emperor. These are the first and the last commands. And you'll notice that both of these have to do with our relationships outside the church of God. In the the middle section, though, we have the relationships among the brotherhood or among the people of God. And among brothers and sisters, we must love one another. Love is a higher standard than honor. And for God, we must fear God. I think that there's a lot of things we could learn about this, this passage. I think we must honor all people outside the church. Everyone. Every person in this world deserves honor. Why? They're made in the image of God. Don't you recall what James tells us? You can't honor God and then come along and mock one of his image bearers. Because if you do, then... You're actually mocking God himself. We must honor everyone. Now, I think Peter is being intentional here by making honor everyone and honor the emperor on the same line. You can't see it in in our versions here, but one of the interesting things about verse 13 is he says this, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. That word for institution is a rather odd one, and it really means human person or human organization. It refers to something being human. Peter is not explicitly coming out and saying, the emperor is not divine. Because I think if he said something like that, it would be quite devastating to his congregation if such a document were to be found by the Roman government. Of course, he's not. And all the the Christians would know that. But do you see what he does here? Both in that verse 13, as well as here, what is he saying? He's saying you're to honor every person. Indeed, you're to honor the emperor. Because guess who the emperor is? He's just a regular person. And back in 13, he says, honor every human institution, whether the emperor. Do you see, this isn't a divine institution. The Roman institution is not a divine institution. It's a human institution. God established it for the good of humanity. I think that this is subverting the, uh, the, the, the emperor cult without explicitly coming out and saying it. And I think all of Peter's audience would have picked that up. But he also indicates to us that there is within the relationship of the people of God, that there is something more important. You don't fear the emperor. We're going to develop this in chapter 3. You you don't fear the emperor, you fear God. And though you deserve honor, or that all people outside the church deserve honor, all people inside the church deserve love. Now, to a certain degree, all outside the the church deserve love as well. But he's highlighting the need for the inter- Uh, community. Because we are all members of a holy nation. We're all on the same journey towards the heavenly realm. So those three things are what Peter tells us to do. What are the applications then? How do we live this out? And let me just work through these and we'll be done this, this afternoon. First, God has not called us to establish a Christian nation. If, in fact, Scripture called us to establish a Christian nation, then I think a passage like this would have been the place where he said, now here's what you need to do. You need to pull yourselves out of the society in which you're in. You need to establish a whole government in which everybody's believers, and you need to enforce biblical morality in in every single case for all people. But he hasn't done that. And I think that this has implications for us today. I think sometimes we as believers too can get into our minds that at some point the United States of America was a Christian nation. Now, let let me, let me back up and say I do believe that when the United States of America was founded, that the majority of the people who founded it were Christian. And so to a certain degree, if you have a nation that is predominantly Christian, then it's going to look very Christian. But it is not a Christian nation in the sense that we're longing for, that we're waiting for. The Old Testament said, establish a nation that's going to be God's nation. But do you know what the New Testament uniformly tells us? It says, live among the nations in which you find yourselves. And live faithfully to God while you're in those nations. So, we don't need to necessarily bemoan the fact that we do not live in a Christian nation. That's just the reality that Christians throughout most of the whole world have experienced. So God hasn't called us to that second. God does call us to be distinctively Christian within our nation. Distinctively Christian within our nation. And I would say that this is based on the entire tenor of the letter. We cannot, at any point, shed our Christian identity. We are exiles. That is who we are. We are elect exiles. And so every relationship we find ourselves engaged with, that is the primary element. So what does that mean? First, that when the government tells us to do something that, we can, that God tells us not to, we say, I can't do that. Because the chain of command goes, God the Father, to us. And then he tells us to obey the government. We understand this from a military perspective. If a five-star general, I don't think there are any right now, but imagine a five-star general tells you to do something, and then later a three-star general tells you to do something else, what are you going to do? Better do what the five-star general told you to do. And you shouldn't feel bad about doing that. Shouldn't feel bad. Because you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. And in the same way, as we are distinctively Christian, there are times where distinctive Christians have to stand up and say, we cannot, we will not. And this has happened in the history of nations. Second, I think, point that flows from this, uh, that we cannot separate our religion from our politics. We cannot separate our religion from our politics. We hear it often that what we are to have is a separation of church and state. And to the degree that that statement is understood rightly, I fully agree. The problem is it's almost never understood rightly. Do you realize that when that statement was made, nearly everybody was religious, deeply religious. They held to something. And when they went to vote, they voted according to their religious perspective. And so it cannot mean, the separation of church and state cannot mean that one's views on religion uh, should not influence their political takes or their political positions. But beyond that, and this is, this is a significant one for us today. Often I hear, listen, we, you, know, you, you need to leave your religion at the door when you come in to vote. And I will say, will you leave your religion at the door when you come in to vote? Do you see every human is religious? Every human has a religious worldview. What is it that's the center of importance? What is it that derives their ethics? And every one of us has that. I don't know how or why it became popular to essentially say, we're going to take this group of people who believes in the supernatural and say they can't, they can't really bring their stuff in, but all of us over here are going to. Well, of course, they're going to have to defend that. They're going to have to say why it is that their perspective is the right one. They haven't been able to do that. They won't be able to do that because they live in God's world. So to say to some people, look, you can't bring your perspectives into the uh, voting block, but at the same time, you say to others, well, you can, is the height of hypocrisy. So that means we should, in fact, vote as distinctively Christian. Now, you're not going to hear me tell you exactly what that means, other than broad principles. And here's what I'd simply say. What is the purpose of government? If we turn back to Genesis chapter 9, the very establishment of human government, here's what it was made to do to protect human life. Genesis chapter 9. If you look at it in, the, in reference to the book of, uh, or in reference to Noah, right after he gets off the ark, he establishes human government, and he says, "If man's life is taken, so shall man's life be taken." So, if we're going to establish government, here's the primary motivation of government: vote for things that promote human life, and not those which destroy it. Second, vote for things that curtail evil, right? Peter tells us in this text, what is the purpose of government? It is to punish evildoers and to promote the good. So here's my three things that I think about when I I go to vote. I think, all right, to what degree is this accomplishing or this, this vote I'm making, this person I'm voting for, to what degree are they promoting human life? Are they... Promoting good, the the things that uh, objectively are good and scripture tells me are good. And to what degree are they willing to punish evildoers so that evil is curtailed? I bring those things into the the voting block and I have no problem doing so. Because this is why God gave us government. He's telling us, obey the government because I gave it to you for your good. And here's why I gave you government. And what we need to say as Christians is, we're going to hold our politicians, we're going, to, we're going to vote in such a way that we're promoting the things that government was designed to do. So, we should, in all areas of life, be Christian. And even in our political lives, we should be Christian. There's a third thing I think that this implies. God calls us to work for our nation, but not place our hope in it. God asks us to work for our nation, but not put our hope in it. You know, I've got a friend who often likes to say, I've read the book of Revelation and I don't see the United States in it. Well, that may be true, but I don't see any nation in it other than this conglomeration of a Rome kind of a thing. So I don't know whether the United States of America is going to be around for a long time, or whether it's not going to be. I really, I don't know that. It could be in the next 50 years, the United States of America is not here anymore. And do you know, that would be okay. Now, I don't say that in any gleeful way. I would not wish that the United States of America would be destroyed. But here's, here's the bottom line. Nations in this world have ebbed and flowed throughout all of history. And if the Lord tarries, they'll continue to do so. And his world in 50 years could look a lot different than it looks right now. And God will still be in control. He's still on his throne. Our hope is not the United States of America. Even if we love and should love the nation in which we are in. Our hope is not to be placed here. But notice what Jeremiah tells us. This is when the original exiles, right? The the Jewish people were exiled from the land. He says this to them uh, through the prophet Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses, live in them, plant gardens, and eat their produce. Take wives, have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, do not decrease, but, and then here's the key for us, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. I think there's an analogy here. Because remember, he has sent his people into exile, awaiting the moment in which he calls them back out into the kingdom. He's using that same analogy for us. We are presently in exile. What should we do in the nations in which we find ourselves? We should build homes. We should build businesses. We should do good. We should have children. We should have families. And and show the world what righteousness looks like in our families, in our homes, in our businesses, and in our churches, so that others may see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Work for your government, but don't place your hope in it. That last line there, he says, and pray to the Lord, pray to the Lord on its behalf, leads me to the final thing I would say about applications for the Christian and government. God calls us to pray for our nation and national leaders. And this comes directly from 1 Timothy chapter 2. Paul says this, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings. I want you to notice something. First Timothy chapter two. Um, <laughs> Paul has already been in prison a lot, and I think Paul knows what's coming for him ultimately. But he says, "Pray for kings and for all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. Praying this way is good. It's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior because he desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. I think the implication here is pray for the kings and for all who are in high positions, so that we would have peaceable life, but don't stop there. Also pray that God would change them, change their hearts, You know, it is the case that very often, and if you watch any news these days, you're either on one side or the other, aren't you? And everybody on the other side is is a hostile enemy. They're the worst people you could ever imagine in the whole world. Depends on which channel you're watching, changes which people are the worst people in the whole world. You know what Paul tells us? You know what? You shouldn't hate the other side, whatever side you land on. Don't hate the other side. Pray for them. That you might live peaceably and because God desires all people to be saved. Even that person who you may see and you may actually see them doing things that are actually demonstrably problematic for our nation. What do we do? Do we curse that person who's made in God's image? Or do we instead say, Lord, give me love for that individual? Help me to pray for them. And we pray for them. That we would live peaceably, yes. But also that they might come to know the Savior like we have come to know the Savior. So here we are as elect exiles, living in a world that's not ours. How do we do it? How do we live in this world? Peter says, Submit to the government. Sometimes we find that hard. Sometimes we do. But we submit to the government because it is God's good place for our good. We submit to the governing authorities. And yet we never forget that we are free as slaves of God. So that as we come to our government, we can say, I'm here to represent one who's greater. We are ambassadors of another kingdom. And we're here to work hard within this nation to show you what that other kingdom is going to be like so that you might also, like us, have a home there as well. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to consider our own political positions in light of what your scriptures teach us. Oh, Lord, lots of questions that are very hard for us to discern and to to walk through. And Lord, we recognize that we live in a nation where there are people who strongly disagree with what we would say is just, just straight biblical morality, what your word set, tells us to do. We live in the midst of a time when people oppose punishing evildoers, and they do not want to uh, promote that which is good. Oh, Father, give us hearts of love for our lost neighbors. Love for those who are on the opposite side of the spectrum from us. That we could show your love to them so that they might see you in us. And that ultimately, your name would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.